You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. And I have Tedrick Thomas Salim Liu. He's a PhD student at MIT. And we're going to be talking about uh, chloroplast gene editing, chloroplasts inside of plants. So, Tedrick, thanks for being here. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Richard. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, so what, what's the basis of your research? Why are you messing with the uh, chloroplasts of plants? Yeah, sure. So, um, so we work on the delivery on um, an application of nanomaterials in plants. So we are a group of engineers here in MIT. We are trying to combine the field of uh, material science and uh, plant biotechnology. And recently we showed that um, using nanoparticles, we can actually deliver um, genetic materials into the chloroplast of living plants. And the chloroplast is very interesting to us because uh, they represent the most important organelle of plant cells. Um, they are the sites of photosynthesis and they can convert the carbon dioxide to glucose and sugar uh, with the help of sunlight, for example. And in the past, um, delivering anything, any kind of materials into this chloroplast has always been very difficult because the plant cell has a cell wall, has a plasma membrane, and the chloroplast itself has a double membrane. So it's really hard to get anything into the chloroplast. But we discovered from previous work that um, some nanomaterials can actually cross a lot of these plant membranes easily and they get trapped within the chloroplast within seconds or even like minutes. And in this work, we found that um, we can attach DNA to nanomaterial and we can then deliver this uh, DNA nanoparticle complex into plant chloroplast to modify the genome of the chloroplast, basically chloroplast genetic engineering. Um, and this means that we can easily gain control of the chloroplast genome, uh, for example, to make them produce proteins or antibodies that can protect plants from diseases, uh, drought, or other kind of living stresses. So, okay, so you're trying to improve the function of the chloroplast to specifically do what? Increase the photosynthetic efficiency or some other metric? Yeah, there are many kind of applications that we can do with this technique. Um, so the most obvious, as you mentioned, is that the chloroplast is the site for the photosynthesis. So they are res responsible to produce proteins required for the photosynthesis to occur. And we can essentially tweak the chloroplast genome to kind of produce more proteins to utilize more sunlight and nutrients more efficiently to boost their growth rate such that we can get plants that can grow faster and also utilize uh, resources more efficiently. Uh, but more than that, the chloroplast is also an attractive site for uh, 
for the production of human vaccines is quite incredible because uh, we can actually produce hormones like insulin um, or like polio vaccine, uh, tuberculosis vaccine or dengue vaccine, for example, in the chloroplasts of living plants. Um, yeah, so like the conventional genetic engineering methods in the plants, they target the nucleus, uh, but in plant cell, in one plant cell, there's only one nucleus, but you have like 50 to 60 chloroplasts. So they are very attractive if you want to express this kind of vaccines because you can have a higher level of uh, vaccines that can be obtained from the plants. Um, and this is an attractive opportunity uh, because the reason these vaccines are now expensive is that uh, they are produced from bacteria. And it, it is very costly to purify these proteins from bacteria and to keep them refrigerated for transport and storage purpose. But if let's say you can produce uh, these vaccines within the chloroplasts of plants, such as lettuce, uh, carrots, or soybeans, you can actually make the production of these drugs much simpler and cheaper because plants can grow anywhere. Uh, you can just eat, for example, the lettuce and the chloroplasts of the lettuce will have these vaccines and you get all the nutrients plus the vaccine. So you don't need any kind of expensive uh, purification steps. Why do you expect that if you create a vaccine that it'll stay resident in the chloroplast and not migrate out or be changed into other substances? So we can actually control um, where they are actually localized. So uh, if we produce the vaccines, for example, inside the chloroplast, it will stay within the chloroplast because we target the, the chloroplast uh, genome. It will not migrate outside uh, just because of the boundaries that the chloroplast itself is surrounded by the dumbbell membrane. So it's actually very hard for any kind of material to kind of diffuse in and out of the chloroplast membrane. Well, what migrates out of the, uh, the chloroplast right now? So glucose can actually migrate out uh, because they are small. Uh, so when chloroplasts produce glucose uh, or starch, they can actually be exported outside of, of the chloroplast to other parts of the plant. Uh, but, if but if you produce like protein, they are bigger, and so you can actually contain it within the chloroplast of the vegetables or the plants that you want to genetically engineer. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what kind of uh, so would, would this interfere with the function of photosynthesis? Would you would you like take over certain chloroplasts and leave the rest so that the plant could still function? You know, like maybe take over half of them, or would you try to take over all of them? And again, would this impede uh, photosynthesis? Yeah, that's a good question uh, because like there are only so much resources. So like if plants use those resources to produce protein, you might expect like, for example, the photosynthesis rate to drop. So far, uh, we are still at the initial stage um, of, of, of trying to make chloroplast uh, express this kind of proteins. Uh, our suspicion is that it will not um, like uh, drop the photosynthesis rate if it produce those vaccines. Uh, because it's, it's essentially trying to mimic um, like the environment of this production of protein such that they are as um, natural as possible to the chloroplast, such that the chloroplast doesn't feel it, that it's producing proteins at the same time as it's doing the photosynthesis. So we hope that we can also maintain the, photos the photosynthesis rate, but it's, it's actually one step uh, like that we need to look after in the future to optimize these things further. 
Well, why um, is there any way to, to strip the uh, chloroplasts out of a plant en masse and have, you know, tens of thousands of them in solution and use them as direct factories to make the vaccines? Or do they yeah. need to be in an existing plant, a living plant, in order to function properly? Yeah, so um, you can actually isolate chloroplasts uh, from the leaf of, let's say, spinach. Um, it's quite common to do so for, like, uh, experiments. But the problem is that uh, those chloroplasts can only stay outside for maximum of 24 hours so far. So after 24 hours, uh, because, like, the outside environment um, is not as... Uh, 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 friendly as being inside the plants, so they will actually burst and die because of uh, osmotic pressure. So it's not currently feasible to kind of uh, make use of this isolated chloroplast outside of the plants to produce uh, the vaccines or any kind of proteins that you want. So it, it has to be inside the plants if you want to maintain the viability over days or months. Okay, and then... Um... How would you genetically modify the chloroplast? Like, do you have to do it by like physical injection into one of them, or you know, again, you said there's a double membrane. How do you uh -huh. carry into the chloroplast which you need to carry in there? Yeah, so um, so here we use nanomaterials. Uh, so it's uh, positively charged nanomaterials, and DNA is negatively charged. So we can combine the two of them together through electrostatic attraction. So we have like a DNA and nanoparticle complex, and then we can just infiltrate it with a needle syringe uh, against the leaf, such that it will actually penetrate through the leaf uh, tissues and finally reach the chloroplast. So it's simple. Uh, this can be done by any scientist or even like non-scientist, uh, where you can just have the solution of the nanoparticles the DNA or the biomaterials that you want to deliver, and then a syringe to kind of introduce this solution into the leaf lamina. Um, so this actually, this actually is much simpler compared to the current way of genetically engineering the chloroplasts of the plants because the, because the current way actually relies on what we call a gene gun, uh, which is a high-pressure gene gun that is used to shoot uh, like gold particles coated with DNA into the plant cell. And hopefully the particles that were shot by the gene gun will end up in the chloroplast. So that's actually the standard now um, in the lab and also like in agricultural practices is to use this expensive gene gun. But the problem with this conventional technique is that because we use a very high pressure uh, gun, there'll be a lot of cell death and also tissue damage, uh, which, is which is unsustainable for uh, most crop plants. Uh, there's also a risk of random integrations uh, of the DNA that we deliver into other parts of the plant cells, because the gene gun method, as you can imagine, is not selective towards the chloroplast. You just hope that uh, one of the bullets stay in the chloroplast and not like, for example, the nucleus or other parts of the plant. Uh, but in contrast, our technique can get around all of these limitations uh, and we can just deliver this uh, without any kind of mechanical or high pressure uh, injection into the plants. And we can apply this technique to any kind of plant species like spinach, uh, watercress, kale, tobacco, without any significant tissue damage. So it's a very useful tool 
if you want to engineer the chloroplasts of plants that, for example, you have in your garden. Interesting. Very interesting. So how far along are you in this process? What, uh, what are some of the roadblocks you've run into and what are you able to accomplish right now? Yeah, so far for some reasons, uh, we can only express the proteins um, in the plant's chloroplast for maximum of one week. So after one week, these proteins, they disappear. So for example, if you want to uh, make the plant resistant to drought or high salt uh, conditions, they can only uh, withstand those conditions for seven days. Uh, after that, they disappear. Uh, because plants recognize that uh, these proteins are still kind of foreign to them and they want to suppress it. So we want to make it more stable. And currently we have ways uh, to do so, uh, to make the gene editing uh, more stable in plants. Um, and one way of doing so is to try to do what we call the CRISPR-Cas9 uh, technology, which is a very hot topic right now. Um, so the CRISPR-Cas9 is is usually done in like animal cells or mammalian cells, but uh, not many have managed to do it in plants uh, because plants uh, have many more membranes compared to animal cells. So it is really hard to get anything into the plant cells. Uh, and with our nanoparticles, we can actually uh, deliver CRISPR-Cas9 vectors, for example, to different plant species and precisely edit the genome of these plants. So we are at that stage yet to, uh, to, to, to try to deliver uh, this kind of CRISPR-Cas9 protein into the plant cells uh, and the plant chloroplasts. And hopefully the effect that we see in the plant chloroplasts will be much longer and more stable over time. Well, why are they stopping the production of, uh, of the particle you want them to, or the, the molecules you want them to produce? What's, what's happening to, uh, to stop the production? It sounds like the plant is... Uh, reacting and trying to preserve its existing function. Yeah, so plants are actually really smart. Um, like if you touch them, they can actually know. Um, they emit some kind of signaling uh, to communicate with, with each other upon perception of stresses. Uh, like for example, if they get wounded, they release this kind of chemical signals. Uh, so we think that when we introduce this kind of uh, foreign genes into the plant chloroplast, they can actually tell uh, that we are trying to do something with their system that they are not supposed to do. Um, so they are actually trying to suppress the production of these proteins after seven days uh, and try to suppress this by releasing some kind of chemicals that kind of degrade uh, these uh, DNA materials and then replace it with their own native DNA systems. Oh, but you don't know exactly what they're doing just yet to protect themselves, right? No, not yet. Yes, we are still in the middle of trying to investigate that. Plant is a very uh, complex organism. Actually, yeah, not much is known um, about the plant's communication signals or how they adapt to uh, stresses. So we, we are still delving into that aspect of the plant science. Well, um, okay. When, when the plants stop expressing what you want to express, do they come back to completely normal or are they still affected in some way? And are you able to evaluate that so that it gives you a clue as to what the plants did? Yeah, so um, just by naked eyes, we cannot see much. Uh, we see about the same kind of um, health status of the plants. Uh, they are as healthy as, um, as the control plants where we do not do anything. Uh, 
so we measure this using what we call a, a chlorophyll meter, which is a measure of like how green uh, or how good the photosynthesis rate of the plant is. And we do not detect any change uh, of plants um, after expressing those proteins that we deliver. Uh, but we're still trying to, uh, to dig into the molecular biology of the plants, whether there's, there are some types of genes that they upregulate to kind of um, alert themselves that there are certain types of protein that we try to introduce and, and all that. So it's still an active area of research and we are still trying to get some clues from nature about how to uh, decode this kind of uh, plant stresses and then trying to to express the proteins actually uh, like more stable over time. Okay. So what's uh, what do you expect is ahead? What kind of, uh, I mean, well, I guess it sounds like you have a lot of bottlenecks. It's very complicated. Um, what's your first step, you think, in evaluating uh, what to do from here? Yeah, so we are actually partnering with some uh, agricultural companies to kind of try to deliver uh, this CRISPR-Cas9 into plants. Um, so... It doesn't need to be like um, long term of expression as well, because um, actually our method works for just like a transient expression, what we call like a transient, meaning that it lasts up to seven days. And within seven days, you can actually do a lot of things already with the plants. Uh, you don't need to kind of achieve a stable integration of the plant genome. Uh, so, for example, this CRISPR-Cas9, we found that. Um, even if you deliver it for the span of uh, of like two days or three days, it can actually introduce a permanent uh, gene editing within the plants. So like the CRISPR-Cas9 itself is expressed for up to one week, but within the span of one week or two days, let's say, it can actually actuate permanent gene editing. So that's one way to go about doing this. Um, which is to move into the translation stage uh, for like farmers and, uh, and also plant breeding uh, programs where we can introduce this CRISPR-Cas9 just within seven days and then the effect will be more lasting than seven days. Well, again, why do you think the, uh, why would CRISPR-Cas9 work better than uh, your current method of doing it? What, how is its mechanism of action different? Yeah, so the CRISPR-Cas9 works better because um, you deliver this CRISPR-Cas9 uh, protein or like the, the complex to kind of introduce a precise breakage in the DNA of the plants such that the plants will repair the, the DNA by themselves. Whereas the current method that we have achieved is to introduce a foreign protein and hopefully the plant can integrate this foreign protein uh, within the genome. So by doing the CRISPR-Cas9, we actually just introduced like a like a, a precise cut uh, in the plant genome, and then the plant can then repair themselves. And in, in doing the repairing, they can actually take in this CRISPR-Cas9 to express precisely what we deliver into the plants. So it works better because uh, we just introduced like a precise cut to the plants, and then the plants, uh, as long as they live, they will repair this uh, DNA cut uh, using the CRISPR-Cas9 uh, complex that we deliver, whereas the current uh, method of delivery is that we introduce a foreign protein which may not de- uh, be accepted, accepted by the plants themselves. So you think this will just be more targeted? Yes, it's more targeted, it's more precise, 
and actually we think that um, it's actually going to change uh, like the the discussion and the definition of what constitutes, for example, a GMO, uh, a genetically modified organism. There is a lot of uh, public perception about GMO, like whether they're good for human consumption or not. But um, if like the the main concern about the GMO is that it's usually produced by a, a method that is called agrobacterium infection. So it's actually we use a bacteria to infect uh, the plant, and in doing so, the bacteria will, will transfer the, the its DNA into the plant, such that the plant will it will inherit the DNA that was transferred over from the bacteria. But there is a lot of uh, controversy around that subject uh, because there is a risk of uh, undesirable gene integrations uh, within the nucleus or other parts of the plant, or you have a risk of leftover genes present in your body, for example. Uh, but with a CRISPR-Cas9 technique, uh, it can precisely edit uh, the genome of the plant such that there is no risk of uh, leftover gene or any kind of mutation in human body if you consume those plants. So it will actually, we think that this will challenge like what uh, the current definition of uh, and regulation of uh, what constitutes a GMO food, for example. What about uh, viral vectors? Are there viruses that infect chloroplasts of a plant specifically? And could those be used to uh, to get into the chloroplast and you know using a different mechanism? Uh, so far, no, because uh, the chloroplast is pretty much a, pre a very preserved um, organelle of the plant cell. Um, it, it actually can resist like a lot of uh, foreign material that was that's being delivered into it. So. Most of the viruses uh, for, for the plants, they actually infect the nucleus more than the chloroplast of the plants. Because once you, once you infect the nucleus of the plants, then uh, you actually impair their mechanism to grow and also to divide cells uh, for like, uh, the, the photosynthesis and living. So most of the viruses now just target the nucleus and not the chloroplast. Um, you say glucose can migrate out of a chloroplast. Uh, you thought about attaching, uh, you know, a molecule to glucose or something that binds with glucose that could be transported out of the chloroplast. Yeah. So, um, so that's not how we did uh, the this technology. So the way we do this is just using a nanoparticle, so like no glucose at all, uh, where we attach a DNA material to the nanoparticle. And then we observe that they can actually just uh, localize into the chloroplast very rapidly and efficiently. Okay, I just didn't know if there's you know there's other vectors to uh, to make this work. That's why I was curious. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting point actually because we we actually managed to make like a look. So this is another project where we managed to make a self healing material from the glucose that is exported uh, from the chloroplast. So we, so so because the chloroplast is is very good at exporting this glucose and other sugars, we can actually make a material. Uh, if we take those glucose, and then we we polymerize it to make kind of a rubber. So like it's a self-healing rubber that is based on the chloroplast that exports glucose. So it's quite interesting to us that with the help of sunlight and the carbon dioxide, we can make 
uh, self-healing material uh, that can repair itself when damaged. Well, what comes into the chloroplast? There must be some inputs to it. It can't just, you know, it has to, I guess, sustain itself somehow. There's got to be some kind of input to it. Yeah, so so gases can can flow in and out of the chloroplast, uh, like the carbon dioxide uh, or like like any other gases can actually flow into the, the chloroplast. Uh, so that's how plants actually produce food. Uh, the carbon dioxide and sunlight can activate uh, the proteins within the chloroplast to produce uh, glucose and starch. So the only thing that appears to go into the chloroplast are gases? Yeah, yeah. Gases and ions, like basically all the small molecules um, that regulates how the plant functions. Hmm. Yeah, but not like uh, big particles. Like, for example, uh, we, yeah, we found an exception that some nanoparticles, if you tune the surface charge of it and also the size of it, they can actually traffic into the chloroplast very easily. Oh, okay. So, well, I was going to ask, how do things exit the chloroplast? There must be some uh, opening yeah. that forms to allow glucose, which is large, to, well, not that large, to come out. Yeah. So, so I think that, uh, uh, you can modulate that to let stuff in. That's right. Yeah. So the chloroplast, the, the, the double membrane of the chloroplast we found is very polarizable. So you can actually use uh, like the nanoparticles to induce uh, these envelopes to weaken uh, by having a charge. So you can imagine just like for, uh, just like a charged particle coming into contact with another charged membrane, and then this membrane will weaken and then allow these nanoparticles to pass through. And then after passing through the, the membrane, actually this, these particles are enveloped by the lipid molecules of the membrane such that they get uh, less charge and then they get trapped within the chloroplast. So that's how we made use of nanoparticles to traffic into the, the plant chloroplast by using this uh, surface charge weakening of the chloroplast membrane. Okay, all right, I got gotcha. you. Hmm. Interesting. So what's, uh, what, what are the goals for the uh, next year or so with the project? Yeah, so we want to extend this more um, to, to crops uh, to have a, a, a big effect on the agriculture. We want to do, for example, rice um, or corn. So far, we have managed to do so in spinach or kale or watercress, uh, but we want to do more of, of crops uh, that are commonly found, um, like rice, corn, and cotton. Um, and... As I said, we want to also express uh, this CRISPR-Cas9 uh, in plants because I think this will be a great achievement for the plant biologists uh, because then we can have a method to, to precisely transform uh, and edit the genome of any kind of plants in the field. Well, are there plants that have a lot more chloroplasts than others? I mean, are yeah. They like the, what are the um, candidates? Yeah, so there are... So, so there are plants that have uh, more chloroplasts than others. Uh, if you think about uh, green vegetables, they actually have more chloroplasts than, for example, rice or corn. Uh, because rice and corn, they have different kind of plastids. Uh, so the chloroplasts, they belong to this category called plastids, uh, which are inherited from, uh, from other organisms uh, um, millions of years ago. Uh, so it's actually pretty easy to target, for example, uh, spinach or watercress uh, or kale 
chloroplasts, but it's not as straightforward to penetrate the chloroplasts of rice or uh, corn. Okay, so the, the ease of penetrating is the biggest factor or the number of chloroplasts? Or anyway, uh, the, I think I've heard that there's different kinds of plants, C3 and C4, any variation yeah. there that would be good to capitalize on? Yeah, so um, I think the the main difficulty or the bottleneck so far is uh, is just the the number of chloroplasts that we can uh, transform as well. Because if you if you can imagine it, um, we we currently introduce the the nanoparticles through this uh, strange infiltration method. Um, it works for a small scale kind of uh, plant genetic engineering. But if you're thinking of, uh, of, of genetically engineering a, a big quantity of plants, um, then you need to find a way that allows for a more high throughput method uh, to do so. And so the number of chloroplasts definitely matters because if you can only target certain uh, numbers of the chloroplasts, then email, the method will not be as effective as as doing so to a large number of uh, chloroplasts within the plants. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Um, what, well, I didn't ask you this, but what type of uh, vaccines do you think would be most amenable to being made inside of the plants versus others? Um, so, yeah, so there are a few candidates. Um, some, some groups or scientists around the world, um, they have managed to produce, for example, insulin, uh, po- polio vaccine, and uh, dengue vaccine within the plants. Um, these vaccines are known to be toxic if they are expressed outside of the chloroplast. For example, if you try to express them in the nucleus, some, uh, some of them may actually kill the plants themselves and, and uh, this will impede the growth of the plants. So these are the candidates vaccines uh, that we we would like to express within the plants uh, chloroplasts like insulin, polio, and also dengue vaccines. And besides vaccines, uh, you can actually also produce proteins that make the plants more resistant towards herbicides or insects, or even tolerance against plant diseases. Um, If you have heard of the citrus greening disease, it's actually a disease that is uh, caused by by bacteria which kills uh, citrus plants like oranges, lemons, or grapefruits in plantations across the world, uh, from Florida to Africa and China. And if you can engineer the chloroplasts of these plants to produce proteins that essentially allow them to be resistant towards this uh, citrus greening pathogen, we can mitigate the spread and also the frequency of these bacterial infections, essentially increasing the yield of agriculture. Okay. Well, lots and lots of possibilities. Very interesting. Yeah, exactly. So there are a lot of applications of targeting the chloroplasts because there are so many in one plant cell. Uh, So yeah, we can make them as a factory for our vaccines. We can make them as a factory for uh, plant resistance and also to improve the plant uh, yield and also to tweak the photosynthetic machinery within the chloroplasts. So as you said, there are a lot of possibilities that we can do uh, with our breakthrough technique. Are there any plants that have, instead of like you know, 50 or 60 chloroplasts per cell, any that have like a thousand or hundreds and hundreds? Uh, that I'm not 
aware of. Uh, most of the plant cells uh, that I work with here, like uh, spinach, arugula, they have on average 60 chloroplasts per plant cell. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if you could dope a plant cell and <laughs> juice it up with, with tons more chloroplasts to make it uh, more effective, you know? Yeah. Maybe one day we'll find a candidate plant that can be used as that. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, very good. So what's the best way for people to get in touch and uh, ask more questions? Yeah, uh, I'm available by email. Um, uh, it's tdrick at mit.edu. So if you are interested to know more about our uh, research projects, feel free to email me. I'll be more than happy to talk to you, uh, to share my interest. We are also working on uh, developing sensors for plants uh, for agriculture. Uh, plants can actually communicate with each other, although we, we cannot tell. Um, they actually also propagate uh, this kind of electrical and chemical signaling. So we are developing sensors for agriculture, and I'm more than happy to talk about that as well as the chloroplast gene editing project. Very good. Well, Cedric, thanks you, thank you for coming on the call. I appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to talk to you today. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.